0: Good morning and welcome to Current Radio. It's Saturday, December 30th. Today we're looking at outgoing Hong Kong district counselors contemplating life outside politics and the intersection of politics and sport. Plus, South Africa launches a case at the top UN court accusing Israel of genocide in Gaza, and the Taiwan curriculum controversy heats up the presidential race ahead of elections. All this coverage and more up next. Welcome to Current Radio's politics station. Please enjoy today's selection of political news. As we look to Hong Kong, we see a shift in the political landscape. Outgoing opposition district councillors are closing their offices and returning to their previous lives. Abby, can you provide some context to this situation?
1: Certainly, Michael. This shift is largely due to the changes in the election process under Beijing's principle of patriots ruling Hong Kong. The proportion of popularly elected seats has been reduced from over 90% to less than 20%. This, along with new rules demanding candidates get nominations from Beijing loyalists, has led to many opposition candidates being excluded from the polls.
0: So, what does this mean for the councillors who decided not to run for re-election?
1: Well, many of these councillors are contemplating life outside politics. For instance, Johnny Chung who represents Ma Shan Town Center on Sha Tin District Council, has decided not to run for re-election under the new rules. He cited an obvious Democratic backslide and a requirement to support government policies as reasons for his decision. He plans to return to his career as a social worker.
0: And what about the councillors who did run for re-election but failed to get enough nominations?
1: Leo Chu, a member of the Democratic Party, is one such councillor. Despite knowing it would be a tough mission, he and his colleagues attempted to run in the last election to highlight the flaws in the system. Chu is now also leaving his office and is considering a career in the legal sector after completing his law degree.
0: It seems like these changes have had a significant impact on the political landscape in Hong Kong. What can we expect moving forward?
1: It's likely that the new intake of councillors will focus more on livelihood matters rather than politics. Pro-establishment councillor Ivy Fu who won re-election expects this shift. However, it's important to note that the absence of opposition voices may lead to less political diversity and debate in the council.
0: It's a complex situation, and it will be interesting to see how it unfolds. Thanks for the insights, Abby. Now, let's delve into the intersection of sports and politics, where the lines often blur. From politicians using sports metaphors to the influence of sports on a government's perceived success, the two realms are inextricably linked. Abby, our sports and politics correspondent, is here to discuss this further. Abby, can you tell us more about this?
1: Absolutely, Michael. The year 2024 is going to be a significant one for India, both in terms of politics and sports. It's the year of general elections and the Paris Olympics. The government's performance in sports is often seen as a reflection of its policy, planning, and execution. So the connection between medals and votes is more than just notional.
0: That's interesting. So how does this connection play out in the context of cricket, India's most popular sport?
1: Well, cricket in India is not just a sport, it's a phenomenon, and it's going through a significant transition. Mega stars like Rohit Sharma and Virat Kohli are facing uncertainties about their future, much like politicians during an election. The appointment of Hardik Pandya as the new captain of Mumbai Indians has raised questions about the T20i future of Rohit and Kohli. It's almost like a political power shift,
0: And what about the Olympics? How does India's performance there factor into this?
1: India's performance at the Olympics has a significant impact on the country's morale and international image. The Tokyo Olympics saw India bagging one medal more than its highest ever haul, with Neeraj Chopra's javelin gold being a standout moment. The government has been pushing for better sports infrastructure and training, and successes like these validate those efforts. The Paris Olympics in 2024 will be another litmus test for India's sporting progress.
0: So it's fair to say that the stakes are high for both sports and politics in 2024. What can we expect in the run-up to these events?
1: Indeed, the stakes are high. In the world of cricket, there will be tough decisions about leadership and team composition. In the realm of politics, the general elections will be a test of the government's policies and popularity. And in the Olympics, India will be hoping to better its previous performance. It's going to be a year of high drama and intense competition, both on the sports field and in the political arena.
0: It certainly sounds like it. Thanks for the insights, Abby. As we keep an eye on these unfolding events and their implications for India's future, let's shift our focus to international relations, where South Africa has launched a case at the United Nations top court, accusing Israel of genocide against Palestinians in Gaza. Abby... Our correspondent is here to provide more insight into this. Abby, could you give us a bit more context?
1: Absolutely, Michael. This is a significant development, as it's the first such challenge made at the International Court of Justice over the current war. South Africa alleges that Israel's actions in Gaza are genocidal in character and has asked the court to order Israel to halt its attacks.
0: And how has Israel responded to these allegations?
1: Israel has rejected the filing with disgust, calling it a blood libel, They argue that South Africa's case lacks a legal foundation and constitutes a vile exploitation and cheapening of the court. They also accuse South Africa of cooperating with Hamas, the Palestinian militant group.
0: What is the basis for South Africa's case and what are the potential outcomes?
1: South Africa is bringing the case under the Genocide Convention, to which both it and Israel are signatories. The case, if it goes ahead, will take years, but an interim order could be issued within weeks. However, it's important to note that while the court's orders are legally binding, they are not always followed.
0: What's the broader context here? How does this fit into the ongoing conflict in Gaza?
1: South Africa has been a fierce critic of Israel's military campaign in Gaza. Many there, including President Cyril Ramaphosa, have compared Israel's policies regarding Palestinians in Gaza and the West Bank with South Africa's past apartheid regime of racial segregation. The country's foreign ministry has expressed grave concern over the plight of civilians caught in the Israeli attacks on the Gaza Strip.
0: This is certainly a complex and contentious issue. Thanks for your insights, Abby. In a shift from international court cases to electoral politics, the upcoming presidential elections in Taiwan are heating up, and a key point of contention is the reduction of classical Chinese content in Taiwan's curriculum. Abby, our correspondent in Taiwan, is here to help us understand the situation. Abby, what's the story here?
1: Michael, this issue is indeed causing quite a stir. The ruling Democratic Progressive Party, or DPP, has reduced the amount of classical Chinese literature in the curriculum. This move has sparked accusations of de a term used to describe efforts to remove Chinese influence.
0: And what's the argument from those opposing these curriculum changes?
1: Critics argue that classical Chinese literature is an essential part of the cultural heritage shared by Taiwan and mainland China. They believe that removing these texts from the curriculum is a political move aimed at distancing Taiwan from China. For instance, a high school teacher criticized the removal of half of the 30 classical Chinese literary pieces from the curriculum guidelines, including key philosophical works associated with Confucius.
0: And how has the DPP government responded to these criticisms?
1: DPP frontrunner William Lai has insisted that the changes are not politically motivated. He says the guidelines are merely a reference for publishers and that the reduction should not be seen as a political move. The education ministry has also defended the guidelines, saying they are aimed at helping students develop the right values and attitudes for more diverse texts, including modern Taiwanese literature and foreign literature.
0: So how is this issue playing out in the run-up to the presidential elections?
1: It's become a significant issue. Observers note that a growing trend of people— especially the younger generation, identifying as Taiwanese only, has made it inevitable for locals to distance themselves from the mainland. This trend is reflected in a recent survey showing 77% of people on the island identified only as Taiwanese. This issue is likely to continue to be a hot topic as the presidential elections approach.
0: It seems like a complex issue with deep cultural and political implications. And as we continue to delve into these intricate matters, that wraps up our stories for today. Thanks for listening to Current Radio. We'll see you back here tomorrow.